0: Good everyone, my name's Ed Kemp and welcome back to the Wide Open Road podcast series. A podcast series providing insights from retired professional athletes to help current professional athletes transition to life after sport. In this episode we feature former Richmond Football Club Best and Fairest winner Daniel Jackson. Dan was almost an accidental AFL footballer as he did not necessarily aspire to play elite level sport when he was growing up. But his athleticism and drive propelled him to a successful career with the mighty Richmond Tigers playing 156 games. Dan was awarded the inaugural Jim Steins Community and Leadership Award in 2012 for his work with a number of community programs and was also an active delegate and board member of the AFL Players Association. After retiring at the end of 2014, Dan continued with his passion of helping people and community work and has created Foundation Performance to maximise individual performance capabilities. He has also travelled extensively around the world and volunteered in a range of different places including Nepal where This World Exists Supporting educational improvements in Nepalese communities. Please enjoy our discussion with Daniel Jackson. Dan, it's great to have you on uh, on the line all the way from London, and as you mentioned before, it's a little bit warmer over there than it is here. Um, and look, mate just as we were talking before we we press go, uh, can you describe what it was like to get drafted as an individual who was not expecting to play AFL footy? and as a result of that was you you know talk about your expectations around Providing a broader perspective on life in and outside the AFL bubble.
1: Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me did and testing my memory to go back that long ago. Because I was drafted at the end of 2003. I was a 17 years old, Kerry Grammar boy. And as you sort of mentioned, I—I I mean, I loved playing footy, but I never really saw a career in it. I didn't start playing until I was 14. Um, like i had done, I was kick as a little kid, but. Mum said footy was too rough for me to go and play at nine or ten years old. So I ended up playing soccer at a, a club in Richmond, and um, was pretty happy playing with the round ball until I got to Kerry, And my mates decided I was um, I was too big and athletic to be playing soccer, so they dragged me across when I was in year eight. So I was already a, sort of a late bloomer to the game. And whilst I was athletic, I could run all day. I wasn't particularly a natural footballer, so. At, um, I think it might have been 16, 17 was probably the first time anyone paid any attention to me uh, as a footballer playing for school and then got invited down to the Oakley Chargers, did some stuff. Never really enjoyed it. I just found, I thought people took it all too seriously and I was a competitor out on the ground. I was ruthless, but for me, it was always just a game that I'd played for fun and I'd go down to these places and everyone had these grand ambitions, which um, was just so far out of my world, I never really considered. But... Long story short, the Tigers had been watching um, Tom Roach, Disco Roach's uh, son, he was the year above me at school, and yeah. so they'd sort of come across me at the same time when looking at him for a father-son, and thought they might sneak me in uh, a year early, because back then you could draft kids at 17, because I think they thought, given my background, I might have had a pretty good progression over the following year as I got another year out of the game, that kind of thing. So. They um, I used to tell this story all the time. I came home one day from school and mum and dad sat me down. I, I thought I'd got myself in trouble because I was sitting at the dinner table. <clears throat> they were looking quite stern. And they basically said that they'd been chatting to Richmond and laid out this deal that the Tigers would like to draft me, but they'd happily let me finish school, play school footy, just come down to the club whenever I could so that was that was kind of the offer that was on the table and i had i think less than 12 hours to decide it was kind of nine o'clock at night and i needed to let them know by nine o'clock in the morning so this big life decision that i said again 17 i mean what do you know about the real world when I mean, you're just a kid you've lived in canwell my whole life and there it was so my attitude was just kind of like oh well i may as well give it a go if it all doesn't work out then who cares i'll go back to whatever else i'm going to do which i at that point i didn't even know what else i would have done anyway so, um so do you think and I'm then there- yeah number
0: I was going to say, sorry, Dan, do you think because you didn't have an expectation that you were going to be drafted and play AFL footy that that allowed you just to adjust your mind around the fact that, oh, this is just another adventure as opposed to, say, a fellow in the same sort of age bracket as you that has basically spent from the time they were 12 in representative teams and the like and the only thing they ever thought about was being drafted?
1: Yeah, and I think back then that probably it worked okay for me these days that attitude wouldn't, wouldn't work I mean it balances out because I was as hard a trainer as you'll as you'll find I'd win the time trials even as when I was young I'd push weights I'd I could do all the conditioning stuff it was just footy that I found quite hard so I would never say would never say I, would never would say I t- took a backward step but yeah early days I was probably a bit more relaxed around well if this doesn't work out I'm going to go to university anyway so I won't stress but that reality, because my first year I was at school and I ended up playing six games in the AFL and I think I, I played pretty well for a school kid who literally would just train once with the team um, if I could get away from school for the day and get the games a lot further advanced. You couldn't get that these days. But then in my second and third year when the expectation of what I should be, the, the level I should be playing at got a lot higher, that's when I started to find it a real grind mentally and that motivation. And then I think it worked against me because in the back of my mind, if things were going poorly on field through injuries or form, I always had this little bit of a scapegoat to go, well, I could always go back to university or I could do what my friends are doing and go and travel and do all these other things. So I think there was sort of pros and cons and ultimately it always just came back down to at footy I needed to make sure I was working hard and being honest about what I was good at and what I wasn't good at and then away from footy making sure that I was enjoying myself and that I did have that as a backup because the reality was that I didn't think I was going to play more than a couple of years anyway. So that yeah, I... If I look back, I don't think I would do – well, I would do things differently, but I um, certainly would not have sacrificed the stuff I was doing away from footy because I think it gave me good balance. But um, I think I probably might have tried to get into footy a little bit earlier in regards to just embracing the culture and not thinking that I was different all the time um, and thinking, oh, this may not work out because it's a hard place to be if you don't have that full confidence in yourself.
0: And tell me, clearly your parents had massive influence on you and – I suspect drummed into you from a pretty early age the, the the importance of getting an education, and you know you did study for the best part of eight years whilst you were you were playing football to get a commerce degree. Can you explain sort of how that mindset helped you playing footy with respect to the your ability to be able to kind of compartmentalise footy and at the same time have some balance in your life when you weren't actually either at training or or playing?
1: Yeah, I mean, my parents never they weren't the parents that ever told me. To, That I had to do anything they were always just a good supportive influence and so I guess they gave me the expectation that whatever you do you just do it well so for me being at school wasn't that I was a fantastic student or that I just really loved it I was just it was that's what I needed to get done and that was often my attitude for footy like I didn't really like training all the time but you just do it well because that's what you're there to do but the biggest influence I think for me with this with the studies in particular the uni study is when I got drafted well, sorry, the year after, so that first full-time when I wasn't at school anymore, had guys like, and this is some vintage players for you, but there was Greg Stafford, Ray Hall, Greg Tivendale, Mark Coghlan, guys like this who, I guess for guys like Stafford in particular, because he played for a long time, uh, had come through that transition where the game really went from semi-professional to professional. And so he'd been drafted or went, you know, picked and played with guys when he was younger that were full-time professionals outside of sport. Yep. And so for that generation of players, they had seen the benefit in having other things. And I think those guys probably did transition a bit better. They never made as much money playing footy, so you weren't as leveraged to that. And you had more of an idea of what the real world looked like. So it wasn't such a tough bubble to get out of. So they were the guys that pulled me aside and said, no, no, make sure you at least do one subject at uni a semester. Uh, Make sure you find time to to get away and do other things. And so because I had those guys as an influence and kind of leading the way, um, I think that made it a lot easier. And then as I was sort of progressing on through my career and chipping away and nearly finishing the degree, I would always try and have the same conversations with the younger guys, but it got quite difficult in around. Maybe 2000 and between 2010 and maybe until I retired in 2014 because the time pressures on the game and training and how much they were trying to get out of the guys was just getting a bit ridiculous. And it was getting really hard to even get to a university lecture in the evening and your day off ended up being full of all other uh, football related commitments. We can chat about this later on, but it's since then, because I've been spending a bit of time back at Richmond just recently doing some research, and it's swung back to a much more manageable level. And the guys down there at the Tigers, some of them are doing some really cool things away from the game. Not necessarily studied, some are, but um, starting businesses and getting involved in different things. So when I first started, I would have said there was no excuse to not do anything away from footy. In the middle of my career, I think you would have had to be really disciplined to be able to get it done. Because I was, I'd have to be, I had to be elite of my time management, even just to make it work. And then now, I think there's no excuses again. So, but I think it does come back to who are the people around you that are giving you that guidance.
0: And I mean, you you picked up on something there, and that's about the fact that when you sort of, if you like, between 2010 and when you finished, that the time pressures of of an AFL footballer became significant, and it probably didn't allow players to have other things outside of the f- footy. What was the reception that you got when you started talking to some of the younger guys and some of your peers about the idea of balance and life after footy? I mean, did they embrace that? Were they interested in that? Or was it more some were and some weren't?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess when you've got a squad of 40 to 45 from all parts of Australia and, and walks of life, you're going to get the some that do and some that don't. I think a lot of them thought I was mad because... They'd see me at a cafe in the morning at 7 o'clock. We had to be at training at 7.45 and I'd be doing study or pumping out emails and then I'd duck off and have a lunch meeting with someone in between um, in in pre-season training mode and then I'd race out for a uni lecture at 4 o'clock because I had to be at Melbourne Uni at 4.15 and they all thought I was insane. But I think there was also for the guys who were somewhat interested, it gave them the opportunity to come and ask and just see how I was managing it. And I mean, I was wrapped recently, Dylan Grimes, was a guy that used to just love asking lots of questions, wasn't the type necessarily to hit the books and go to uni, a real hands-on kind of learner. And he and I had a lot of conversations. I was working with a guy away from the game late in my career just to help me work out what I might want to do later, a little bit of self-discovery kind of stuff. And Dylan got a hold of that, and he ended up finding someone similar and doing a similar thing. And long story short, has ended up starting a – he bought a a little vineyard and and, and a wedding venue um, down in the Macedon Valley – Macedon Ranges?
0: Macedon Ranges, Um, um, yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah. And kills it. And his day off now is out there um, setting up the farm, and his and his partner runs the the wedding venue part of it. And that all just I'm, I'm, nothing necessarily to do with me, but I think he would say that having guys like myself and there's a few others at the time who are a little bit older, just to to see as little role models and say, geez, those guys are doing stuff away from footy. And he wasn't a big footy head either. Loves his footy, but also has a lot of other passions. I think that yeah, they're those little subtle influences that can make a difference for the guys that want to do it. I think there are a lot of guys that uh, I've had conversations with over the years who I just realized, you know what, footy is their thing. This is the time of their life that they're going to be having the most fun and have the most success. And if I was coaching, if I was their manager, their father or their coach, then yeah, I'd certainly be trying to push them into exploring some other things, but I think I've come to learn the reality is for some people, it's gonna be, footy is that big priority because if they don't prioritize it, then they, uh, they're doing themselves an injustice for their career, but they're the ones you really have to watch at the end and handhold them through the transition period because they're not going to be ready for it. That's just the reality. And if you let them go off and you don't have their hand held, that's when you get, I think, some of the issues that we pick up in the media for guys who have retired and and hit a wall.
0: And I mean, I think, you know, that's a really interesting point because one of the interesting and fascinating things to come out of these conversations with, with other people across all range of different sports is the ability to actually understand what you want to do before you finish and transition to something rather than from from their sport and you picked up earlier that you know getting prepared and understanding some of the things that you enjoy and you're passionate about I mean the ability for that to occur now sounds like it's swinging back the other way can you describe when you were playing when that uh, you know almost to my mind less is more now and the fact that certainly from the my knowledge of the Richmond Football Club is that they're a bit more relaxed with respect to the way that they uh, treat them, you know, going into a game. There's a lot more smiles and the people seem to be happy and enjoying themselves. Can you describe that when you were playing, that sort of mindset around trying to just be in the, in the moment when you're playing, having the ability to, to get out of it and do other things, but also the fact that, to my mind, it seems like, you know, too much footy is actually detrimental, too, many, too much training, too much, a whole range of different things to do with the sport can actually not only be bad for your performance but also bad for your life post footy can you give me sort of some perspective on on the ability to you know just be full-time footy and not do anything else and that surely can't be good for you
1: yeah well, there's a bit in all that I'll, i must go back to the point you started with around sort of knowing what you might want to do later on and then work to how you fit it in because one of the best bits of advice i got was from one of the board members at richmond early days he was a, he was a partner at ernst and young and um I was doing a commerce degree, but I had literally had no idea what that meant. Like I, had, I might have been 22 or 23 at the time, so my mates, had, a lot of them had finished their degrees and gone to work at places like EY and KPMG, and I couldn't have told you what someone in accounting did versus someone in tax versus someone in audit versus any other parts of the business. So I was chatting to this guy, and he said, well, why don't you come down to EY, and we'll, we'll just pass you around a few of the different areas. So I spent a week in my off season. Each day I was in M&As and then I was in tax and I, was in, and I went around it and what I realised was like, Jesus, the thought of sitting behind a desk crunching numbers all day when I love people and I love strategy and, and thinking of creative ideas, this is just not for me. And so I went back and I told him, I was kind of a little bit of my tail between my legs. Uh, I, I don't think I really want to come and work for us. He said, mate, that's fine. That means this has been a really, really successful week because now... You can work your degree, and at this point, I was about to—I was going to go through and do finance accounting for my for my um, undergrad. You so dodged, I ended up
0: you up the bullet to there. Management
1: mate. and marketing. <laughs> Sorry, you dodged a bullet there. <laughs> yeah, yeah so I just, as I was saying that, I realised I have some partners. I actually, went down and Dave Wansbro, who we were chatting about before, also showed me around uh, your office as well, and that was quite an impressive setup. And there was the way I saw his role that was more client-focused and seeing people. So I I started to realise that. I didn't know what I didn't know, but I needed to start to work out, okay, well, what doors do I want to open? And this is what this partner at EY on the Richmond board told me. He said, open as many doors as you can as you go through life. And then as you realize that there are certain things you don't want to do, like I didn't want to be an accountant, close that door. But otherwise, don't try and just narrow it down straight away because you might get to a point in life where you go, geez, actually, I don't want to be... A physio but i've spent my whole life training to be a physio and now that's kind of all that's the only door i have open so for me at the start it was about just trying lots of uh different things and the more things i could cross off my list well that was just as positive as discovering what i did want to do so with dylan grimes loves being outdoors getting his hands dirty loves serving people so he's landed his pretty quickly and he's just followed that path i'm 33 now been out of the game nearly five years and i'm still working out what i want to do but I think all the different things I did along the way have helped add into where I'm getting to and I'm pretty confident that when I get there, it'll be because I've had, always had a a broader perspective and those different things that I've picked up along the way will come together. How does that fit in? Well, as I said, between 2010 and 2014, Richmond wasn't the same as what it is now and even probably on to 2016. I mean, I've just been back conducting a bunch of interviews with Peggy and, and, and Damien and Brendan and a few of players around their culture change for this Masters that I'm doing so it's yep. been really fascinating having been out of the system there for a few years to go back and see where they're at and exactly what you said before about being relaxed and having a good balance and seeing football as a part of life but not identifying you that's absolutely what they're about and I think it's they're an amazing case study that other elite sports and athletes need to look at in the future. But when I was there, it was very much of the process. It was rigid. It was serious. There was no huge, well, there was still some humour. We had fun. But there was a lot of pressure and stress and expectation to perform. And so with that, at the start, when Damien first took over, he had a rule that if you weren't doing anything off field, away from footy, you couldn't play. But as the sort of years went by and the expectation of where we should have been as a team, um, was kind of raised that rule kind of got pushed a little bit aside and it was we encourage you to do things away and then the days got so full because the sports science guys were sort of it was all about maximizing um, what you could get out of players that there was just very very little time and what time you did have there was very very little energy left over and so people stopped talking about the importance of doing stuff away from footy and there was a little bit of a gap there when most guys i don't think were really doing much so it's good to see that it's come back now but i think the same advice that i got would apply to any athlete in any code it's You've got a great opportunity to tap into networks just to learn what is out there in the world. And if if by learning, you learn the things you don't want to do, then that's just as beneficial. But doing nothing and waiting until you finish, and I've seen this time and time again, you lo- all those doors close. All of a sudden, a lot less people are prepared to help you, and you're often desperate to go and be liquid. You need money. You might own a house, but not fully, so you need to pay the mortgage. You could go back to school, but... You don't get paid to do that. You can keep playing footy for a little while, which may not be good for your your body or not, but you end up often, guys, just end up getting sales roles or coaching roles or media roles to fill the financial vacuum, and then they never really get that opportunity to reassess, well, actually, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? I'm 28 years old. I've got a long time to live and work. I don't want to just take the first job that gets put to me. So that's where the benefit of being curious early, I think, really pays off.
0: Yeah, look, and there's no doubt about it. I mean, I've always said that the most important thing, whether it's my children, or whether it's friends of mine, whether it's AFL footballers or other professional sports people, spend time working out what you don't want to do because it's really critical. If you if you spend if you're spending thirty or forty years in a job that you can't stand, but it's you have to do it out of necessity, I don't think that's that's a great way to have a fulfilling life. You mentioned before about. A board member i think i might mention his name but i think i know who it is explain what you consider to be the way that afl players leverage that opportunity and what i mean by that is the fact that you know board members coterie groups a lot of these people are very influential in their own spheres do you think that players in your experience leverage that opportunity enough
1: no definitely not and it's not a lot of people would say it's through arrogance or ignorance i just think a lot of it is through fear you think about it, you get a kid who's drafted at 18. Well, prior to that, he's lived in a bubble of football as well. It would have been TAC Cup football, school football, club football. They know one world. And then all of a sudden, you throw them into a function after a game where they've got a bunch of people in suits. And unless their dad came from the corporate world or, you know, the kinds of places where like EY and and, and Partners, or even just other big companies, they may not have had any exposure to the corporate world or the business world or whichever world they might be walking into that evening. And so they don't know the questions to ask. And often AFL footballers are quite insecure away from, or athletes are quite insecure away from their sport, because that's all they've really known. So their ability to go and engage in a mature conversation and ask questions and understand what this person's role is about, I think sometimes it's quite a, it's a big gap to, to bridge. But I, again, as far as like bits of advice go, another when I was younger, another bit of advice I got, which I thought made a real difference for my attitude, because I used to hate those kinds of functions. I mean, I was again, I was studying commerce, so I kind of had a new an idea about what different people did, but I just found it all boring. But I just uh, I got this advice: always try and be interested and not interesting. So rather than go in there and make them ask me questions and then me get bored talking about footy, I just ask questions about anything. I used to love traveling, so if I could get them to go down that path. If I, uh, I used to love reading, so I'd say, well, have any you read any good books lately? And if their jobs didn't interest me, I'd ask them more questions. But I just found by swinging around and having people talk to me rather than me talk to them, I was starting to fill all those voids in my brain about how the real world worked. And I think if you can take that and turn it into a process, like athletes are very, very good at building process. Every This is what I've seen in the corporate world now and the space that I'm getting into. There is just so much missed opportunity around performance optimisation. Like people drift through their, their jobs. Yeah, they work every day. I watch people and they attend meetings and they, they write emails and they put reports together. But you would never get an athlete doing something in their day that isn't related to their performance. So every Monday they get up and they can tell you what they're going to do that week that's going to help them play better the next weekend. So you can teach athletes process because it's natural to them. And I've been working with a few young athletes over in Canada and the UK, and what I've been getting them to do is if they go and they do meet someone interesting or if they have, there's a guy here that was a professional rugby player, So build yourself your own personal database of who's on the board, who are your sponsors of the club, and then go and identify the individuals within that and then just start sending them emails and go for a coffee and then afterwards make sure you've typed up some notes into a little spreadsheet about what you thought was interesting, where they may be able to help you later on, and then follow them up with an email just to say, thanks, these are the things I learned, and could you introduce me to this person or could you pass on that video you mentioned and just start to create a process like you would with training around building out this network of people that are in your spheres of influence that you may not have even known Um, and if you can be proactive like that as an athlete anyone will end up you could literally get a hold of anyone in the world if you wanted to get a hold of Elon Musk well through the Richmond Footy Club someone will have a way to get there but you've got to be quite diligent in
0: following the breadcrumbs kind of thing look there's no doubt about that I mean I think the idea of, of getting off your backside and actually being proactive is incredibly important and as you well know you know the more the more conversations you have the more opportunities just, just pop out of the blue purely because some, you're interested in something um, and the next minute you know, you know you're know you getting an introduction a bit like the EY, a bit like what you did with Nike and a bit like what you've done with, with other sort of areas of your life when it comes to just getting experiences to understand what else is out there and one of the things that really interests me was that you were the inaugural Jim Stein's Community Award winner in the AFL back in uh, I think 2011 or 12 I think for memory and I've obviously stuck at um, and being involved in community can you tell me two things firstly where did that level of community mindedness come from and what has it taught you about preparing yourself for life after sport and the experiences that you've had that might be instructive around what you're doing now
1: mm. well yeah it was a strange one because when I, um, I won that award I knew I'd be nominated by the club but I genuinely didn't think that I would win. I just knew there were a lot of guys around the league doing different stuff. Um, and I was in Mexico at the time, actually, Mexico City with a mate when I got a call back from the club saying that I wants you to come back to the for the Brownlow for this award thing. Um, so that's how much I certainly didn't think I was going to um, win it because I just got involved in these things it was, it was a bit of a natural progression after having graduated from Melbourne Uni and realizing I had way too much time on my hands that I just didn't like if if I, I was someone if I had just footy on my mind because my footy career was never smooth sailing it would just to drive me insane um, I'd be real flat if I had too much time to think so in the void that um, had come up out of uni classes disappearing, I felt like I needed to do something productive, but there wasn't enough time in the week to actually do any proper work experience. And I'd thought about doing a day a week. I think it might have been a black rock through one of the other board members at the time. There was potential for Nike back then, but it was just unrealistic because even my day off, the first few hours were spent doing rehab and conditioning uh, and then you had to run your own errand. So I thought, okay, well, if I, I don't want to do any further study yet. I can't get any work experience. Why don't I, I just do some part-time stuff? And it started off with a mate of mine who now has a company that's quite well known around Australia called The Resilience Project. But back then he was working for someone else and just running resilience programs for school kids. So I would go along and share my story about some of the challenges I'd had as a footballer and how I'd managed to sort of work through them. And then um, as he was sort of progressing on through that, I got passed on to Headspace, which was a, sorry, not Headspace. Yeah, it is actually. It was a national uh, mental health body for kids in Australia. Yep. And they were looking for an ambassador. I said, oh, okay, well, I've been sharing these stories and i look, I don't have a mental health issue, but I've always struggled with anxiety and stress and all that. So I'd happily do that. And these things just kept getting passed on and then someone at Big Brothers Big Sisters got my name from someone and they said, oh, look, we you know, love the idea of having someone, a, an athlete with a profile who talks about the mental struggles because a lot of our kids have these kinds of struggles. Would you like to join the board? And then it was ladder. Every time it just got passed on until I win this award at the Jim Steinsworth well, the Brown though and people start asking me, oh, so why did you get into this? And I didn't have an answer for them. I said, I don't really know, to be honest. I just, I really like getting up and sharing my story. I love helping people. I was kind of just filling my time and people seemed to find it useful to have me around. And I really don't really know what value I add, but this is just how it's ended up. And yeah, since like that just sort of continued on through my uh, career, uh, and then when I retired and I traveled for a while and moved to Canada, I was working in the corporate space uh, just in a small consulting firm and kind of had that same realization I'd had at EY. I mean, I learned a lot and there were certain things that I loved, but I sort of took away two things. I wasn't helping people. Like I was helping these companies like CBRE go and pitch and, and win big contracts, but that didn't motivate me. And uh, I was just seeing all these gaps in from the world I'd come from of high performance around team dynamics and communication and conflict management and stuff that I thought the sports world could teach the corporate world, I, just, I, I wasn't seeing it, so when I moved to London a few years ago, all these pieces start to come together a bit, well, I still love the idea of helping young people on their journey, this resilience and mental health thing is only becoming a bigger issue, team dynamics, culture and leadership is a huge thing, and a huge void in a lot of um, industry, so where does all this fit in? Okay, well, my commerce degree helps give me a bit more understanding around how that world works. The non for profit work, I've got a lot more confidence in presenting and sharing stories and I've met so many people that have shared some really powerful stories over the years so I kind of know where the need is and it all comes back to how do you help individuals and teams perform better. So that's what I was kind of saying earlier that I still couldn't tell you where exactly I'm going, but I have the pieces now for the puzzle, and the puzzle's slowly getting put together. And it's the pieces have come from all walks of life, from hanging out with guys like Jay King and Dustin Martin versus hanging out with partners at at corporate um, firms as well. So. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, I think, I, would, I sometimes look back and think um, maybe if I just had one good idea early when I was still playing footy and just driven that, it probably, I would have been able to use the networks to be successful in whatever it was. But um, I think one of my values is curiosity and I love learning and travelling and meeting new people. So I always use that as kind of like, don't take the easy route, just keep chipping away and eventually it'll become a bit more clear. So far, so good.
0: Well, it, look, it certainly sounds that. And I mean, one of the things that you just touched on before is the fact that you you are getting closer to working it out but i've always been of the view that you know you'll do a couple of different things over the course of your life you might do many things and you'll often look you know you might look back when you're my age uh, at 50 and go what did all that mean and what does the next 20 years look like and i think the thing is is that these things are never linear and generally speaking you find something that you're passionate about and it takes you it might even take you down a journey or a pathway that you never even expected and i think that's one of the beauties of the things that you're doing now because clearly you're combining some of the things that you've learned whilst you're playing elite sport and how you can actually translate them into a a slightly different environment but still have that performance mindset. And I think that's one of the interesting things about this conversation. Can you tell me about the things that you've learned in the elite sporting environment? Maybe there might be one or two really key or three things that you're starting to look at from a corporate perspective around the things that you've learned and the things that you can apply to the corporate environment that's come from an elite sporting environment.
1: As in, like, as a, what an athlete can apply when they're in a non-sporting environment later on.
0: Yeah, because I mean, I think the one thing that a lot of sports people probably underestimate is the transferability of the skills and yeah. the knowledge that they've picked up along the way. And I mean, I think that, that you clearly have leveraged that and are now applying that in, you know, off the field. But I mean, can you give me some examples, perhaps, of the things that you, you know, that you use from the experiences you had playing footy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I used to. Um this was one thing I could just never get my head around when I was towards the end of my career and I was—I knew I didn't have that much longer left. Every time I met an ex-athlete, I would ask them that exact question, what is it that you know now about your abilities to have be successful outside of sport that you um, didn't know when you were playing? Because everyone talks about, you know, you, I had to go to a, a CV when I had retired. I'd never put a CV together, a resume. And um, all the things in there that I thought held me in good regard, like leadership and communication... I was told that if I showed people, they like, oh, everybody puts that on there. I was like, yeah, but I actually know what leadership's about. Like, I've done leadership in front of 100,000 people. I know communication. I've done live TV. I've done live radio. I've presented at forums. I've done this. I've done that. Like, you you can't tell me that your level of communication is the same level as mine. And they'd say, yeah, yeah, but on a resume, they, they want people want to see hard facts. They want to see influences that you've made. They want to see data. I said, what, they want to see my statistics? Like, I had 33 kicks against Hawthorne last year. Does that <laughs> going to count? Um, and so that used to really, really annoy me. I think it's a very, very... Good question and not necessarily easy to answer. I think for me, and again, when I lived in Canada, I've been doing some work with some guys over there who work with the NHL Players Association. So I got to know quite a few NHL players. So we would have similar conversations. And over here, I've met a few soccer and rugby players. And the, the skill sets that sport seems to teach you, in particular um, team sports, I think for one, it is that ability to, to manage conflict and get the best out of each other. So to build a high-performance culture is a lot easier when you have people who have been in a high-performance world who know genuinely how to work together. And I, again, I see this in the corporate space. They talk about teams and teaming, but people have no idea how to do it because a lot of people just go from school to university to grad program to climb their way up the ladder. And so their version of a team has just tended to have been people who have sat at desks near them. And um, there's, that's where there's real opportunity as an athlete to come in and build camaraderie, challenge directly, be way more empathetic and supportive than the average person because in sport, you you know, there are a lot of hardships so you learn to look after your teammates. So I think that's one of them. I think the ability to build relationships outside of your current workplace. So to go out there and get in a sales or an account manager role any opportunity where you can go and leverage your network and your ability to engage people. Most athletes are pretty engaging because they're used to telling stories and people want to hear the stories. So use that storytelling skill to make money and to make money for your company or whatever industry you're in because business is all just about bringing in business. So if you've got, if you like getting out there and having beers and, and telling stories, that's a massive play. That's effectively, you get made partner at a place like EY because you can bring in business. and a lot, of, a lot of money gets brought in over boozy lunches and uh, bottles of red wine. So athletes are very good at that part um, as well. And then I think the third one is probably what I said before around process. Just treat your career, post-career, just like you would in your normal career. Get up at the start of every week and the start of every day and think about the things you need to get done that are gonna help you improve in your job. And it's not gonna to be to get a W or an L on the weekend. The, the, it's a long-term game. It might be six months, 12 months, three years. But just know that everything that you're doing is moving towards something and don't get stuck in the rut. My boss in Canada used to say the priority of the important versus the tyranny of the urgent. And everyone gets sucked across to do the urgent stuff like writing emails and sitting in meetings and getting on calls. They just don't need to be a part of. The important stuff, which may be the long-term one, is the one that's going to move your career forward. And I think athletes can be very, very good if they get taught that just because that's how they've spent most of their lives, chipping away at something that's going to help them run faster, kick further, not get injured, build on their leadership skills on the footy field. That's the world they've come from. So they need to capitalise on that and don't get stuck into what is status quo or an inertia in the business world because the business world has a lot to learn from what athletes do. So they're probably the three.
0: And look, I mean, that's beautifully put. And I think one of the things that – always fascinates me about professional sports people is that there is always this, and if you take an AFL footballer or anyone who plays team sport regularly over the course of a season, you know, there's this immediacy of getting a game, making sure you play well so you get picked week to week. But then there's other parts of the life, their life which is more longer term, which might be I want to move from, you know, half back or half forward into the midfield. That might take two or three years to get your, your fitness levels up so you can actually cope with doing that. And then there's more broader, longer-term things about whether it might be, you know, performing at an elite level every week, which goes over the course of a of a number of seasons to become, you know, like a Dustin Martin or a Trent Cotson or some of the guys that you used to play with. Can you talk about that that short-termism of, you know, getting a game every week and just trying to perform week in week out versus the transition to a, a much more strategic mindset, where I think a lot of players and professional sports people are too caught in the moment and too caught in the short term and they never sit back and think about, well, where am I going to be in 10 or 15 years? And that can often be to the detriment of them when it comes to what they're going to do when they finish.
1: Yeah, I think one thing I've learnt that I learnt too late in my career and now Richmond are really doing well sport traditionally has always been about what you're not doing well like athletes get drafted because they're great at something but then for whatever reason you draft these athletes in and then you go right you're not a great kick you're not a great decision maker you're not very good at this so we need to keep working on those things and i know like i had certain strengths of it as an athlete like i said earlier on i could run i could out compete anyone i was i was pretty ruthless so i could always, there was roles that i could play that were going to be useful for the team but i was never going to be Trent Koch on a Dustin Martin except all my like a lot of my coaches' early days were trying to make me into that, trying to make me a great kick and decision-maker. What I learned, of I mean, it was actually Justin Lepich later in my career, sat down one day in a pre-season, I was a bit despondent, I had a, a rough year with injuries, I think might have been 2011 or 12. I was playing consistently in the team, but just not at the level I wanted. And he sat down, he said, mate, I think we spend too much time on you trying to work on the things you're not very good at versus, and we're starting to neglect the stuff you are good at and now that's coming down and you're, that's why your performance is suffering. He said, mate, we need to make sure that you do what you do well and do that better than anyone else and then we'll just make sure that these other things aren't bringing that down. And so that mindset shift of, well, hold on a minute, let's focus on my strengths and not my weaknesses was a big reason for me going through the end of 2012 into 2013 um, playing average football to winning a BNF and not missing a game and having a lot more fun. And there were different variables along the way that sort of came in. But now, again, having spent time at the footy club recently and, and anyone who listens to Richmond, you know, Shane Edwards, plays his 250th game on the weekend and there was an article on the AFL website and he made the exact point around since 2016 we've just focused on the good things and the things that we do well rather than stuff that we're not good at and that's made a huge difference. So I think for athletes, if you're talking about like short, short-termism short or even long-term, it's well, what am I good at? Why did they bring me into the club that I that helps me stand out and never forget that part because that's the thing that's always going to set you apart from everyone else. So that goes into the corporate world too. If you're great at building PowerPoint presentations but you're not very good at presenting, then partner up with someone who hates PowerPoint presentations but is a really good presenter and you guys make a fantastic team. And that's something you, any young person can, um, can build the skill on. And that's where I think there are those synergies. And then over time, you can start to go, okay, well, I'm very, very good at this. If I continue to do this really well, this is probably where I'm going to end up. And if you think that that's going to be a little bit too narrow, you think you need to build in other skill sets because you want to be partner somewhere one day and you know there are certain things you're going to be able to do, then add that in there and start chipping away as well. But don't let it come at the detriment of what you do really well. And that's, I think, why Richmond have managed to turn the place around on a lot of players that, I know, when we won the flag in 2017, Grant Thomas, I think, had an article or made a comment that he thought they were the worst list of, or the worst, no, they certainly weren't the best team to have won the flag that year. Because on paper, there are a lot of guys you didn't really know, but you ask anyone at the club and they'll say, these guys just played their role and they did what they do very, very well. So I think it's kind of it's simple advice and it seems quite intuitive, but in sport, the intuition is often not that commonly done. So you know, I think you, that would be um, the
0: best place to start. You made a comment before about the fact that in 2011 or 2012, you were struggling with injuries and you were focusing probably too much on what you weren't good at as opposed to what you were good at. I read an interview that you uh, had with the AFL Players Association website a couple of years ago, and you mentioned that in 2012 you you know you lacked enjoyment you know with your playing of your footy, and you know to me that sounds to the average person out in the street who's a footy fan that sounds pretty strange because most people who of sort of the similar vintage of an AFL player who probably play footy on the weekend would love to be an AFL player. Can you explain you know that enjoyment factor in AFL footy because It seems to me that the further AFL footy goes from an evolution point of view, less and less players are actually enjoying footy for what footy is, which is a game. It's not, you know, at the end of it all, it's not the be all and end all of life as you've pointed out earlier. Can you talk about the enjoyment factor or the lack of enjoyment and the reasons why players in your experience need to make sure that they do have balance in their lives because they can have a crappy day at footy, they can play a bad game, get dropped and if that's the only thing that's keeping them going, she's going to be a pretty miserable existence.
1: No, I mean, just are spot on. And I had balance in 2012. My footy just wasn't going very well. I was struggling with hamstring tendonitis. I'd had issues with suspension. And I've looked at the trend now. I used to always get reported when I had a lot of pressure to perform. So when I, my body was underdone, I might have had a period of bad form. Then there was all this expectation and pressure to play well. And the way I coped with that was always to just deal with it with adrenaline. And then adrenaline makes you make poor decisions. I'd end up hitting someone or doing something stupid behind the, the play. So for me at that point, it wasn't around having balance away from the game. It, but it, what did very much come down to the fact that I just wasn't enjoying playing at all. Like I loved my teammates and I liked to work hard, but I was really dragging my feet to the club every day. Again, because when you're not playing well and everyone's having a go at you and everything's negative, and you're starting to get quite insecure and, and lose a lot of self-confidence. And it's very, very hard to have enjoyment. So it was halfway through that 2012 year, I said, stuff this. I was, I was on the verge of just wanting to retire then and there. I thought, what's the point? Like I can go and have so much more fun doing other stuff. It's not about the money. But I thought first, I am better off to at least just try and enjoy the journey. So for the rest of that year, my mindset was just to have fun. And then through 2013, through the pre-season, it was the same thing. If I wanted to do extra training, I'd do extra training. If I wanted to go have a beer, on a Wednesday night and watch some live music, I would just go and do it because I was old enough to know that it made zero difference to how you played on the weekend. And so that for me was a big catalyst that helped me play a lot better was the fact that I was just having fun. And you go to Richmond now and you watch, you see all the videos and you hear the stories. Those boys love to have fun together. Everything they do is fun. That's why no one cares about... Um, Sydney Stack celebrating with Eddie Betts. So why not Like celebrate the guy? He just kicked an amazing goal. You're not gonna let him do it again, but you can see that they're playing with enjoyment. And I mean, this is just all from, from afar, but I picture if I was Stephen May and I'm having a pint on a Sunday because I've been in long-term rehab and I, I was in long-term rehab plenty of times and there's there's nothing wrong with having a beer when you're in long-term rehab. If you hurt your ankle on a Saturday night, game you don't want to be having beers that week because of the swelling but if you've been in rehab for six weeks it makes no difference and yet that someone takes a photo they send it to the media and then his club come out and they hang him out to dry and say no nah, that was inappropriate we have rules around drinking we're going to talk to him like he might have other things going on in his life as well just the fact that he's a senior player who's come down to a new club and he's injured the whole year you know he's going to be flat and now you're lynching him in front of the football world Whereas you could be embracing him and saying, it's a beer on a Sunday. He wasn't going wild. He was just having a beer with some mates. We really don't care. We'll have a chat to him and make sure that the, the place and the time is appropriate. But otherwise, no, he's, we've completely got his back. If you are in, a, if you create an environment like that, I think guys are much more likely going to enjoy themselves. And don't take that as enjoy themselves. They're going to go sink beers all the time. It's enjoy themselves and that they're going to train better. They're going to want to spend more time together. If they do want to have a beer on a weekend, or on a weeknight, fine, but at the same time, you're probably not seeing all the extra work they're doing because of the loyalty they have for the club that's supporting them, and that's where I think good clubs and bad clubs, and I shouldn't say bad clubs, but I think clubs that have had long-term success. I remember mean, we used to watch the, the Hawks guys and the, the Cats players back when they were both... I mean, the Cats are still very good, but through that period where I was playing... I would see them out all the time having fun together. they go to groups to the races. They'd be down at the beach, hiring beach houses. They just seem to genuinely enjoy each other's company. And I think that comes about because it's an environment that they want to be in. And if the environment's too stressful and there's too much pressure and it's too negative, no one wants to be there, even if you love your sport and you love playing footy. You might love going there and kicking the football around, but you probably don't love the environment. So you're going to lose an element of that person's ability to, to really add value to your organisation. And so, that, again, that's the stuff that I think even the corporate world can learn from because a lot of people drag their heels to work every day. So I find it probably a bit harder to find the enjoyment and the passion um, outside of footy. But it is there, and it tends to come from people first.
0: Tell me, tell me this. It, yeah. it really, you just hit on an interesting point that sometimes you find it hard to you know, not so much motivate yourself, but maybe enjoy, you know, life outside of footy from a professional point of view versus being inside a footy club. You know, you've got, you've got a lot of guys that you're close with, you, you're similar ages, you've got similar interests and you're, you're doing something that you, you know, most of the time you love. Can you talk about when you transitioned and you and you retired? And let's face it, you retired probably a little bit early age-wise and as I understand it, you had a contract on the table for another season but I believe your you know injuries your body started to, to give you a bit of trouble so you thought you'd, you'd get out. When you walked out the door for the last time as a, as an AFL footballer, can you talk to me about, you know, if you can think back to that time, you know, your mindset and, and, and how did you feel? Were you nervous? Were you excited? Were you a bit of both? Did you have any clue as to what you were going to do once you'd actually made the decision to finish?
1: No, not not particularly. I mean I I didn't have a contract on the table. I had another year on my contract. So I could have just hung around, and even if I never played a game, I would have got paid the full whack of it through 2015. And I retired, people may remember, on the eve of the of the finals in 2014. And I'd come, you know, I was in and out of the side all year through injury. I'd done, I think I'd had hamstring issues. Then I'd had hip bruising and, and bone bruising from a collision at GWS. Then I'd come back, I'd stranded glute. I'd come back into the VFL in, I think, about round 20 and got suspended for cleaning up this um, kid behind the play who was being a smartass. And then um, <laughs> there was a week off before the before that uh, final against Port, and Dimmer had said, if you, I just need you to train well, and if you tell me you're right to go, then um, you let me know, and you know, we'll make the decision. And I trained, and the whole two weeks of training, I was just on the cusp of, um, of breaking down. I could feel it, like my hips were just stuffed. I could hardly turn. I had no acceleration. But not that was kind of the acute part of thinking, like, am I going to be right for this game? But I'd had this plaguing doubt for the, a couple of months beforehand that I was just really struggling for motivation to get up every week. Uh, I was really grinding my way to get to the footy club. When I was at the footy club, like I was doing everything right, but I was just going back to this quite unhappy place and it just I'd seen so many guys hold on through their end of their career as long as they could because they didn't know what else to do and how that not only was bad for their bodies you know so many of the guys I played with who played into their 30s need hip replacements knee replacements shoulder replacements but mentally too how it was taking a toll I could see it sort of just it weighing on them um, and so I it was <laughs> not quite literally that day I was actually thinking I'd finish the year out And then probably just retire in the off-season, just do it quietly. But then when I went into a seat dimmer and tell him that I didn't think I was right to play against Port, because whilst I really wanted to play in another final and make up for the year before, the last thing I wanted to do was go out there and get injured early in the game and then the the team be a a man down. And it just kind of went from going, I'll tell him that I'm not right to play for that reason, to I'm not right to play and I just don't have it in me anymore to keep grinding out day in day out to get myself to my best ability and that for me to be a good player I had to be doing every single thing right and if my body wasn't going to allow me to do that on my head more importantly I just I, I was prepared to be an average player again but as to what I was going to do I really had no idea I I was dating a Canadian girl at the time we'd been together for a few years so I always thought and I've always loved traveling I knew as soon as I retired I would leave to go overseas I was initially probably going to move to New York because I had some friends over there. But given that connection, or that was kind of an easy first place Is all right, well, let's just go move to Canada, gets me out of the bubble, gives me some clear thinking time and to sort it all out. And so that was kind of just the first step is let's just pack up and go. And then um, I think it was, I was on the road backpacking for about eight months in Central and South America, which again, it's a small thing, but I think that's a huge window of opportunity for an athlete who retires after a long career in any sport to actually get away from the bubble. If I'd stayed in Melbourne, I think I would have found the transition a hell of a lot harder because when the pre-season went back for 2015, I could have been second-guessing my decision. When the footy season started, I might have been missing it a lot more. And not only that, I would have just still been talking to the same people that I'd always spoken to and probably ended up doing something that was a great opportunity, but not necessarily what I needed or wanted. So getting out of that and having to build new relationships and get new perspectives enabled me, it's taken a lot longer, but and it's enabled me to go and follow the path that I've wanted to to follow without getting distracted by bright flashy things that could have been thrown at me back at uh, back at home.
0: But I, I think the other so,
1: yeah thing, no no real plan.
0: <laughs> and but I, I think the thing is is that I guess what you'd call you you, you embraced uncertainty. You had a university degree behind you. You had a pretty good perspective on life in general. And then you just jumped on the road and started travelling. I mean, as you were going through the the initial part of the of the the transition to what I'd call just another citizen, and I mean that respectfully, Dan. Um, Can you talk about the kind of the the freedom you felt and because obviously regardless of what you did, AFL footy is still very, very structured and it was no doubt very structured when you were there with respect to, you knew what time you were training, you knew what time you were playing, you knew where you had to be, that was all kind of done for you. To suddenly be, the shackles are off so to speak and you know, you can travel to Canada, you can travel wherever you want to. I mean, how did that make you feel after spending 12 or 13 years in a system which is very, very structured?
1: Yeah, I, I quickly learned that I retired because I was so tired of structure and routine. Like I could have told you Tuesday 2 o'clock, this is what I'd be doing. Thursday 10 a.m. any year, this is what I'd be doing because it was the same thing for 11 years. And so from 17 to 28, I was kind of like still a big school kid. And so I was very much tired of all that, but I very quickly realized even backpacking around South America at the time that I needed structure and routine, but the difference was it had to be my structure and routine. I needed to be empowered and have the autonomy to be in control for once. And so I learned, for me, it was about three pillars. I had to have something that was physical. I needed to look after my social and I needed to intellectually be stimulated. So I would, uh, I was, I'd was. i still train all the time when I was backpacking around, whether it would be running on beaches or finding these gyms in places like Peru or where in Bolivia. And at the time, I, I was just uh, not blogging everything, but I was writing notes about all the places I was going to, um, taking, you know, the. Um, photos of the different spots and trying to build out a database so that if I wanted to share that with other people if I had some friends who were going to travel here it was so that for me made me feel like I was achieving something and then I was just reading a lot as well catching up a lot of the books that I hadn't read for a long time so I just found if I if I didn't train for a few days or for a week or so then I'd start there quite irritable if I wasn't using my brain in some capacity and I was just drinking beers and all these really nice places I'd get restless and then socially too that was easily getting ticked because I was meeting people a lot of the time and then when I moved to Canada All of a sudden, I was in a new city. I don't really know anyone. So the social part became a really big, important one. Because if I sat at home all day looking for jobs, having no one to talk to after having spent my whole life around people through school and footy, I was finding that quite difficult. So I had to be really proactive to get out there. And then the training thing continued as well. And so what I found is that that structure and routine was really, really important to help keep me a bit more sane whereas initially I probably if you had asked me what I was going to do I would have told you no structure and no routine and I know a lot of guys I played with had a lot of success when they retired uh, guys like Chris Knights and Nathan Foley and Jay King, sort of that similar era, they would meet up and go to the gym together a few mornings a week just in Richmond, uh, one of the fitness firsts I think at the time. And just as a way to sort of keep some familiarity, like with the social part of it, the training element, having some goals, having an excuse to get up early when they hadn't figured out what they were going to do later on. With all those other sports I've started to see around the world and the athletes I talk to. The guys that do build themselves a routine when they finish seem to do, deal with that transition a hell of a lot better than the guys that don't. Because you can't, you, like your brain is literally wired in certain ways and it tends to wire to your environment and your lifestyle. And as you said, like the athletic lifestyle is all just about structure and rigidity. So your brain is used to that. And if you take it away, there's going to be an imbalance and it's going to let you know. So it's probably yeah, a very, very important one to keep in mind.
0: Look, it's interesting the fact that, you know, whilst you, you've changed from the routine of someone else putting their routine in front of you versus I guess what I'd call empowerment and the fact that you'll structure things the way you want to structure it because now you have the freedom to do that. I want to just talk a little bit about your experience on the AFL Players Association board and I mean I think through conversations that I've had with yourself and other athletes it it becomes very clear to me that you need to do a couple of things to continue to improve and I guess set yourself up for life after sport. The first thing you need um, well, it's certainly very important to have an education. Now, it might not necessarily be a university degree, but you need to have something behind you, or certainly something behind you that would assist you to maybe stand out from the next person. The second thing is, it's important to have mentors. And the third thing is, is it's really, really important to be able to not only get the ability to understand what it is that you want to, that you don't want to do but also get an understanding of the passions that you have out there that you can potentially turn into a career. But at the same time, you've got to get off your backside and do it. it you know, you can, you can set up all the programs you want, whether it be through the football club, whether it be the association, the AFL, NOL, etc. Can you talk to me about your experience with the AFL Players Association and the things that they've done, the things that might they might still be doing that you could be involved in around this issue of transition to life after footy?
1: Well, yeah, I think... Even globally, but so not just the AFLPA, but players' associations associations all over the world sometimes get a bad rap for transition because athletes will transition out, they have a bad run of it, and then they come back and they say the game didn't do enough for me. Or people will look at athletes who have had a bad story and then they'll say, this is the Players Association's fault. The reality is, all I mean, not all Players Association's are great. I've seen quite a few of them. The AFLPA, though, is one, definitely one of the world leaders in this place of athlete development, well-being and transition. The, all the services they offer are always there. They're, if a player was to use them for everything that they could, there's no way they would have a bad transition outside of the non-controllables. But the reality is, uh, most players just don't engage at the level that they could or should and so that when they do come out of the game, uh, they're not necessarily a setup, but that's not for lack of service offering, that's from exactly what you would say, lack of getting off your ass and actually doing anything. Um, and if you leave it too late, as you said before, and you've retransitioned out, and a lot of those window, those doors have closed, and there are constraints or there are pressures around finances and timing that uh, you need to go and follow, then you're shortchanging yourself from what you could have started that journey. If you'd had to start that journey earlier, we could have potentially got to. So I think the first thing you hit the nail on the head before it's mentors is a huge one. Just go and talk to people. Find someone in an industry that you find interesting and just ask them questions. Because I don't think I mean there's another example from a Richmond player, Brandon Ellis. Never gone to university. Not a, not an academic. He'd tell you himself. School was never his priority. Footy was. But the partner with I think must have been a mate of his from school uh, or a family friend and started a watch company. Yeah, Importing watches, old, doing the I design. Sorry,
0: I was going to say I did read that that uh, you know he's gone off and started a watch company, which I reckon is bloody fantastic.
1: Exactly right, and even if he just he doesn't see himself in the watch game for the rest of his life, I asked him about this. When I caught up one of the times I was back in the year, he was just saying, you know, learning to build a brand and to manage stock and logistics and websites and SEO. There's so many skills now that if he was to retire and want to start a new business or go and partner with someone, they could say, okay, well, tell me what you can do. And he could tell them lots of different things. In fact, he probably, by the time he retires, will have more functional business skills than I did, even though I had a degree from you know, one of Australia's top universities and I'd sat on boards. If you'd asked me what I could do for your business, I don't think I could have told you much because I didn't actually have any um, transactional kind of skills, which he's now gone and built through this, what seems to be quite a fun part-time job for him. They seem to have quite good success. So like you said, have a skill set or build something, some experience, whether it's academic or, or something like Brandon's there and Use that as a first leverage point. Couple that with mentors who you're asking lots of questions of because they're going to open doors. They're going to push you through. That's going to be a lot more fun and interesting than anything else. And then go back to your PA and go, okay, well, hold on. What could they offer me now that I have a bit of an idea about what I'm good at and what I want to do? I've got some people that are really happy to help me along the way. What services from the PA can be of use? So maybe the, you might actually go and do some study because you realize, you know, Brandon might go, I should probably go and get a bit of background in marketing because I think that's where an opportunity is and you might go and find a diploma in marketing that the PA pay for or they might have a they might even have a business they might have a, a person as part of their team that helps you write a business case um so you might sit down with them and then you don't have to pay anyone to do it and they work with footballers so they know what your skill set's like blah 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 um but I think yeah the PA themselves if if anyone inside or outside of sporting world thinks that that's the solution they're kidding themselves but also anyone who thinks it's just on the player to do it by themselves they're kidding themselves it's got to be these kind of different touch points of personal networks afl network use the club network and then i think family's always the, the consistent one but it's it's as you probably know working with athletes there's never one sort of silver bullet that helps them transition well it always tends to be just a myriad of different things coming together
0: and I, mean, and I think the thing is, and we'll, we'll, we're going to be wrapping things up fairly shortly, but I, th- I think the thing is is that I've learnt this not just talking with athletes but just in my own life, is that if you ask somebody for, for help, advice, or have they got half an hour to, to shoot the breeze with you about something, 99 out of 100 people will always say yes. And it's that opportunity that you can actually go, you know what, Dan, can I have half an hour with you? I want to talk to you about ladder, or I want to talk to you about what you did before you finished footy. I mean, all of those types of things just become incredibly important. And I mean, I think there's so many really great lessons that people who are listening to this, especially younger athletes who are still competing, that can take out of our conversation. But I think the most important one or two really is leverage your ability whilst you're in or you're standing whilst you're in a football club or in any other sort of sport. Because once you finish, then generally people move on to the next person who's, who's still in there and still competing. And the second thing is is that just surround yourself with good people that can help you because if you do that, it's amazing what opportunities will present themselves. And I think life's all about creating opportunities and sometimes you don't quite know where they're going to come from until you actually get out there and have a bit of a crack. Now, Dan, before we go, as I mentioned to you uh, when, we st- when we teed this conversation up, there's always the last question I ask everybody. It's the same question and it's really simple. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self about life in professional sport and preparing for life after sport if you knew then what you know now
1: i was thinking about that and then i think I'd, there's a lot of stuff that we've kind of chatted about that at different times in my life i would have said this is what my 20 year old self needs to know and i think the one that i've kind of because for me i just have this love of learning and trying different things this idea of being interested and not interesting it's very easy as an athlete to think you're the most interesting person in the world but then you just you don't learn anything. There's a great quote by one of the U.S. presidents. I think you don't learn anything by,
0: from talking or whatever. My wife says that to me every day, Dan.
1: <laughs> there you go. You remind your fifty-year-old self. <laughs> I'm probably a bit the same, actually. But no, I think for me, it's um, and it's, it, it comes back to me personally. But I, I'll never shirk the issue when it comes to to working hard. But I can be quite. I've learnt that I can be quite well, I'm very self-critical around where I'm at. So that element of just having fun and being more in the moment and enjoying life, like I start to see a lot of my mates now, um, they're really on that trajectory in their career. They've had their kids, they've got the house, they're they're climbing up the ladder wherever it uh, might be. And I think they probably think I'm a little bit mad at times, still living in a share house in London and spending my weekends in different cities and still going in in the way that I want to go. And I'm still very much... Intent on being successful in in my career, but after having spent so many years in a system where uh, it was just work, 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 I think my twenty year old self, the advice would be just enjoy the journey. And a lot of that is having fun and keeping balance and and making sure that you're just ticking those different pillars. So having making sure the social part is there, that you're stimulated intellectually and that you're working really hard and as an athlete the physical part you've got that every day so you don't have to worry about it now that's something i have to drive myself but yeah enjoy the journey because i think too much of my career i was just so stuck about the things that weren't going well or what i needed to do that i uh certainly wouldn't have said i enjoyed most of it but luckily i got to enjoy the last part and funnily enough that tended to let that led to the most success I had as an individual athlete uh, as well so I just I just wonder sometimes if I'd had that mindset when I was 20 how different things could have been but that's I guess that's part of my motivation to do the work that I do now and the stuff that is with athletes just to try to teach them that like you, you can't shirk the hard work but make sure you're enjoying it
0: along the way. Dan Jackson, that's fantastic. I really enjoyed having the conversation. I'm going to ask you one last question though. So i sorry for asking you the second last question. Bonus round. The, bo- <laughs> the bo- bonus round and tell me this. It might be a difficult one to answer right now, but how do you judge success? And if you think about where you've got to now and you know, you've got a, a great business, um, you're doing a master's in performance psychology at the University of Edinburgh, which apparently you're finishing right, pretty much as we speak. Can you tell me about how hopefully. you... <laughs> hopefully you don't complain to the, uh, to the board to say, oh, some guy from Australia was interviewing me and I didn't get time to do something. Um, <laughs> can you tell me about how you think about success outside of sport?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. That's probably something actually that you need to ask me in, in 10 years' time. I mean, I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts and it's like I said before around sort of being self-critical and always trying to drive performance. Yeah, I certainly have a lot of times where I'm questioning, like, geez, is it time for me to move home? And is it time for me to go and get a job for someone else and just make sure I put my head down and yada, yada, yada? Because working for yourself, especially on the other side of the world, is a grind. Like I don't make any money over here. I keep my head above water. Luckily, I made lots of money playing footy, so that's back in Australia. I have a house. I don't have to stress as much about that, so I'm not being ignorant around the importance of making money. But right now, that's certainly not my uh, main motivator. But I do every other day question, is it the right decision, or should I just go back and get back into Melbourne where I've got the networks and all that kind of thing but I don't know for me success I think is being able to do something every day that you enjoy doing and I don't know you read lots of things and they say if you find something you enjoy doing that you're good at and that other people need ultimately you will be successful and that's easier said than done because it's taken me a long time to work out all those different elements I think I know what I'm good at I spent some, a lot of time when I was playing footy working out what I was passionate about. So I've said it many times today, but it's about my three things around curiosity, compassion and courage. So curiosity, always learning, which from overseas, I'm ticking that every day. Compassion, so I'm doing a lot of stuff working with teams to help them improve and a lot of stuff around mental health with young people and, and, and young athletes. So that works. And courage used to be winning hard balls and doing the tough roles for footy. Well, thankfully now I don't have to put my body on the line to be courageous, but going back to your question around well what is the thing of success i think for me at the moment it's being courageous to keep following this path. that it's not necessarily the easy path. at times it's certainly a lot more fun but that comes with the stress of so you start to say geez am i having too much fun or do i need to actually lock it all down but yeah i think over time hopefully when i'm 40 i'll look back but that's what i was going to say around the podcast i listened to tim ferris podcast and a lot of the questions that he would ask to his staff people were what would you tell your 30 year old self i remember i was 31 and i I'd heard it so many times, I just, that I don't know why it took so long to dawn on me. I realized, wait a minute, if these guys are telling their 30-year-old selves to chill out and just to follow their passions, then I'm only 30. I've got 10 years to work it out, so <laughs> always trying to remind myself that this is a long, long play journey, and you know, if it comes back to getting those pieces right around doing it for the right reasons, I think then the success will come, which I know is probably quite a convoluted answer and probably just shows that I'm still working it out a bit myself. But I think I'm confident that in ten years, the path that I'm on now, I'll be able to say, well, this is what success is measured on, and it's not going to be the fact that I've hit a certain pinnacle in my career or made a certain amount of money. It's just that I would have had a lot of impact doing the things that I particularly love to do, which again is based on a sort of those values that I mentioned before.
0: Dan, it's been fantastic having a conversation with you. It's fantastic that you've still maintained to keep your Australian accent, which we really love. Um, don't <laughs> lose, don't lose that, mate. Don't become pomified. Um, it's been never. never. But it's been terrific, so thank you very much.
1: No, thanks, that's It's great to chat and it's good sometimes just to, to go through these things. So if there's any um, athletes current or past out there that want to reach out, they can go through you or track me down on social media because I'm always happy to lend perspectives and thoughts. I certainly don't have any of those silver bullet solutions, but I uh, always love to have a chat.
0: So I'm more than happy for people to reach out. Thanks, Dan. Cheers. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road Podcast. I'd love to know what you think, so please email me at edward at bigpond.com if you'd like to share your thoughts, suggestions or recommendations with me. And if you happen to know a retired professional athlete who might like to share their story, please contact me as I'd love to speak with them. And if you do like what you hear, please subscribe to the Wide Open Road podcast and share this podcast with your friends. And remember, our next episode will be released in two weeks' time. Until then, all the best.